It's a hot and humid summer day, and your neighbor is mowing the lawn on the other side of the fence while throwing back a cold one. You notice that he looks really sweaty, so you ask him how he's doing. His reply doesn't seem to make any sense, and he seems really confused. Is he suffering from heat exhaustion, heat stroke, or something else altogether? You're listening to 911Cast, the no-nonsense EMS podcast. I'm Scott Topiel, and this week, it's all about exertional hyperthermia. Heat-related injury occurs when the body's core temperature, normally about 98.6 degrees Fahrenheit, exceeds the ambient temperature and the body's ability to dissipate heat is compromised. Mix in high relative humidity, say 75% or more, and the situation gets even worse. Anyone that exerts themselves in these conditions can experience a heat-related illness. Especially vulnerable are firefighters, athletes, soldiers, and construction workers. During physical activity, skeletal muscles produce heat. The body's cells, enzymes, and critical organs are tuned to function within a very narrow temperature range. A core temperature that rises a mere 9 degrees Fahrenheit is enough to cause significant harm. The body relies primarily on evaporation to get rid of excess heat. To move heat from the core to the surface where it can dissipate, the body increases blood flow to the skin. The blood carries heat towards the surface where sweat is produced. Through evaporation of sweat, this heat is removed from the body, allowing the core temperature to stay in the desired range. This is also why high humidity increases risk. More moisture in the air means that sweat evaporates less efficiently and therefore removes less heat. So how does heat kill? When the body's ability to remove heat is impaired, things start to go haywire. Salt and water losses add up as dehydration sets in, leading to hypovolemia and hyponatremia, a dangerously low sodium level. Venous return decreases, leading to circulatory collapse. Perfusion to the brain becomes insufficient, and neurological symptoms occur, such as confusion or seizures. Certain things put a person at risk for developing heat illness. Common risk factors include strenuous exercise or exertion in high temperature and humidity, poor physical fitness, obesity, dehydration, acute illness such as a bacterial or viral infection, carrying heavy equipment or wearing excess clothing such as protective gear like turnouts or body armor, and alcohol use prior to exertion. Also, a history of heat stroke can make a person more susceptible to it happening again. Dehydration is a significant risk factor. When a person becomes dehydrated while exercising, they have less blood volume available to move heat from the core to the surface. They can't produce as much sweat, and therefore less heat can be removed through evaporation, keeping body temperature elevated. The two most significant heat-related problems are heat exhaustion and heat stroke. Both require treatment, though heat exhaustion is less serious than heat stroke. Be careful, though, because it's sometimes hard to differentiate between the two, and a person's condition can progress from heat exhaustion to heat stroke quickly and unexpectedly. A hallmark of heat exhaustion is the inability to continue with the exercise or activity. During heat exhaustion, the core body temperature, measured rectally, is usually between 101 and 104 degrees Fahrenheit. Other symptoms like tachycardia and hypotension, profuse sweating, headache, GI complaints like abdominal cramps, nausea, vomiting, or diarrhea, or persistent muscle cramps might be present, but they don't have to be. If heat exhaustion goes unrecognized or isn't treated quickly, or if the person just decompensates rapidly, they progress to heat stroke. 
During heat stroke, the core body temperature is usually above 104 degrees Fahrenheit. At this point, organ and tissue damage occurs. Many of the signs and symptoms of heat stroke are the same as heat exhaustion. The key to identifying the difference is the presence of neurological symptoms. Look for things like disorientation or confusion, acting irrationally, irritability, inappropriate emotional outbursts, or being otherwise altered like having difficulty answering questions or being slow to arouse. In severe cases, seizures or coma might occur. You might have been taught that heat stroke can be identified by the absence of sweating. While this remains commonly cited in textbooks, it's not accurate. Virtually everybody that experiences heat stroke will have been sweating profusely up until the time that they got sick. This means that they're going to be wet with sweat regardless, so don't rely on this to make your treatment decisions. Neurosymptoms don't need to be extreme in cases of heat stroke. Pay close attention to subtle changes in the person's mental status. If they've been exerting themselves in the heat, can't continue their activity, and are even just a little bit off, treat it like heat stroke. Okay, so you have identified the patient as having a heat-related emergency. Now what? You gotta lower their temperature, and fast. Check a rectal temperature if possible. Don't bother measuring temperatures any other way, like orally, under their arms, or in the ear. These won't be accurate enough and they're gonna misguide you. Remember, elevated temperature associated with altered mental status is heat stroke. Once you've made sure that the ABCs are intact and there aren't any immediate life threats that you need to address, focus all of your effort on rapidly cooling down the patient. A person's risk of severe injury or death is directly related to how long their core temperature remains elevated. As always, consult your local treatment protocols and medical direction. But generally speaking, you want to cool first and transport second. Begin by removing excess equipment or clothing, but don't delay cooling measures to do this. Whenever possible, cool the person down at the same time that someone is helping remove their gear. The most effective way of lowering core temperature is to immerse the patient in a tub of ice water. The colder, the better. That might sound extreme, but doing this maximizes the amount of body surface area that's in contact with cold so that heat can be wicked away from the body. If you don't have a lot of ice, tepid water will do, but it needs to be significantly cooler than the patient and their environment. Put a sheet underneath their armpits and make sure that someone is keeping their head above water so they don't drown. In most cases, you probably won't have a tub of ice water big enough for the patient, so you'll have to get creative. If you have access to cool running water, such as a shower or garden hose, start continuously dousing them. Minimize their exposure to heat by moving them into the shade. If you don't have running water, then get a bucket of ice water and use it to apply cold, wet towels to as much of their body as possible. Be sure to rotate the towels every two to three minutes so that they stay cold. At events where you know in advance that the risk of heat emergencies are high, it's a good idea to have a cooler filled with ice water and towels on standby. What if you have plenty of ice but no tub? Consider placing the patient on a sheet or tarp, covering them with ice, and wrapping them up. Add more ice once a moderate amount of melting occurs. Unless part of your protocol, there isn't really any evidence to support chilled IV fluids for cooling in the field. If you have to manage other life threats or need to transport the patient rapidly without staying on scene to cool them, then you can apply ice packs to the neck, armpits, and groin. While this isn't as effective as other methods, it's better than nothing. Also, be sure to turn the air conditioner and fans to high. 
If you have access to spray bottles of water, you can constantly spray the patient with the fans running to improve evaporation. Of course, it's possible to cool someone too much, so how do you know when to stop? If you have a rectal thermometer, most sources recommend stopping active cooling once the core temperature reaches about 102 degrees Fahrenheit. If you can't check a rectal temp, then about 15 to 20 minutes of cold water treatment should cool most patients off by about 5 to 7 degrees Fahrenheit. You should also stop when the patient begins to shiver. That's how to treat heat stroke. But what about heat exhaustion? The first step in the treatment of heat exhaustion is to recognize that the person is in trouble and have them stop the activity. Move them to a shaded or air-conditioned area and have them lie supine. Take off any excess clothing or equipment to maximize heat loss. You can use any method to cool them that you'd use for heat stroke, just less aggressively and for a shorter duration. Rehydrate them with chilled water or electrolyte-containing fluids such as sports drinks, as long as they aren't nauseated or vomiting, and that they aren't altered. Remember, if they're altered and can't safely follow your commands to drink fluids, then you're probably dealing with heat stroke, not heat exhaustion. Let's look back at our scenario, your 62-year-old lawn-mowing neighbor that's hot, sweaty, and confused. Further assessment reveals that his blood sugar is normal, and so is his blood pressure, although he's a little tacky with a pulse of 106. Given physical exertion, the hot temperature and high humidity, consumption of alcohol, and confusion that hasn't improved after moving him to the shade, heat stroke seems pretty likely. Exertional heat illness is an ever-present danger when someone undertakes intense activity in high heat and humidity. Complicating factors like poor physical fitness, dehydration, insufficient time to acclimate to the hot environment, and certain drugs and supplements increase this risk. Recognizing subtle neurological symptoms associated with hyperthermia and applying rapid cooling measures is key to preventing long-term injury and even death. That's it for this week's episode of 911 Cast. Please subscribe and review us in iTunes. This week's episode was brought to you by One Kit First Aid Kits. Check out their professional grade first aid and first responder kits at buyonekit.com. That's B-U-Y-O-N-E kit. Dot com. Thanks for listening.